Um, we're going to pray. Uh, if you don't know, Fred Muse was taken to the emergency room last night. Uh, he has some various issues, complications, and uh, we're going to be praying for him uh, now. And we'll also pray during church. Uh, baby Cece is home. Woo-hoo! Praise the Lord. Okay, and so we're going to give thanks for her and pray for her continued recovery. And um, uh, I think that's it. It looks like there's donuts back there. Oh, my goodness. All right. All right. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the way the week has unfolded and just the beauty of it. Thank you for sunshine and birds singing. And thank you, Lord, for uh, keeping us, for all of those who were traveling, Lord, bringing them back safely to us. We're grateful to see them and, uh, and for their safety and trip and their travels. We pray for our friend Fred Muse. We ask you to be with him in his, uh, his medical care right now. We pray that you would guide the doctors to know how to treat him. And we pray for his body to receive their treatment and that there would be no complications and that he would be recovering soon and be with CJ and the family as they, um, as they go through this with Fred. And we ask you that uh, your peace that passes all understanding would guard their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Lord, thank you for hearing us as we have prayed and prayed and prayed for little Cece. We are so grateful. We rejoice in your name that she's home. And um, we pray that her body would continue to get stronger and stronger and, and that she would uh, breathe easier and easier. We pray for her family as well, that you'd watch over them. Lord, be with us now as we get into our class. We ask you to be our guide and our shepherd and our, and our teacher. And bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So we're doing this series, Why Do You Do That? And we still haven't come up with an answer. Oh, no, wait, wait. And so, again, just the topics we've dealt with, worship. Um, last week, we ended church government. We did two parts on church government. Uh, we're going to talk about complementarianism, who's John Calvin, catechisms, and church membership. And again, as I said last week, if you still have other questions that I need to cover that you think I should cover, let me know. And I will figure out where to put them in. You may have to do an addendum on here, you know, like an addendum class or something. So today we're going to talk about complementarianism, okay? Um, and I think as we go through it, you'll go, oh, that, I got it. I see what you're, why we're dealing with, dealing with this and so forth. Uh, remember our classes, anybody is visiting uh, or has just been hanging around us and wants to know why we're doing that, what we hope for in the end of the day is that whether they agree or not, they are able to say, well, these people really take Scripture seriously and they're trying to be faithful to Jesus and I can live with that, okay? And also, for the rest of us, um, sometimes our kids and grandkids, sometimes our neighbors, sometimes the person in the pew next to us says, why do you do that? And hopefully we'll be able to give them some answers to help them out. Okay, that's, remember, that's the purpose. We want to talk about complementarianism. So we'll talk about the difference between complementarianism and egalitarianism. I'll define all this, by the way, in a minute. Biblical background and principles and implications and applications. So we're going to talk about complementarianism. There we go. So complement, notice how it's spelled. To complement something is to complete or enhance by providing something additional, to be complementary to. It's different than what John does when he goes to the restaurant and he, get, he compliments the waiter for being a good server and gives him a $20 tip or something. That's compliment with an I, compliment with an E is different. It's to complete something. They do come from the same Latin root word. Um, but I just want you to see the difference in the word, okay? Does everybody got the difference? So to complement with the E is the idea of uh, completing or enhancing, providing something additional, and so forth. And so, that's just right out of uh, Merriam-Webster. This is from a website called Theopedia, which is a, Christian, or a theological uh, page that's uh, related to Wikipedia. Okay? So complementarianism is the theological view that though men, although men and women are created equal in their being and personhood, they are created to complement each other via different roles and responsibilities as manifested in marriage, family life, religious leadership, and elsewhere, and is rooted in more literal interpretations of the creation account and the roles of men and women presented in Scripture. And that's a good definition, I think, a very simple definition of complementarianism and what it is. 
Um, by the way, I do actually think that what we're getting into will help us also in other social issues going on in our time where things are getting muddied and muddled. I hope that makes sense, right? Because uh, if, if this is true, then we actually have far more to say to our society, to people in our families and stuff, maybe who think that gender is so fluid that they can be whatever they want to be and so forth, okay? So, complementarianism. Any questions up to this point? So it's different than complement with an I, right? Complementarianism, all right. So, so egalitarian, oh, oh, versus egalitarianism. So egalitarian, and again, this is Merriam-Webster, uh, is a belief in human equality, especially with respect the social, political, and economic affairs of social philosophy advocating the removal of inequalities among people. And I think that's an unfortunate they put the inequalities in there. But basically, but that's egalitarian. Egalitarianism takes that and goes a step further, I think. But that's egalitarian. And, and as a society, we hold to some form of an egalitarian approach, right? I mean, we, we have an American myth. We tell our daughters or our sons, you could be president, anybody could be president, right? That's part of that egalitarian itch that we have in our country. The reality is probably most of us could never be president because for various reasons. But egalitarianism, this is from Christianity, uh, uh, Christianity Today, I believe it is, Christianity.com. Egalitarianism is, uh, in Christianity, egalitarians agree with complementarians that men and women are equal in worth. However, egalitarianism goes further to state that men and women are considered equal in role capabilities as well, that there are no gender restrictions on what roles men and women can fulfill in the church, home, and society. This view holds that the teaching and attitudes of Jesus in the New Testament abolished gender-specific roles as well as roles related to class and race. So do you hear the difference between egalitarianism and complementarianism? And so you can already, just from the two definitions, you can already begin to, de to decipher, if you think about your church's, church experiences throughout the years, you can already begin to decipher where certain groups are, right? From the way you see the leadership and what happens with the leadership and so forth. Can you? <laughs> yes, okay. All right. Any questions up to this point? <clears throat> well, let's do this then. We are, as a denomination, we are complementarians. Okay? We think that there are ever, men and women are created equal uh, and redeemed equally and have equal standing before God, and yet God also has made sex role distinctions in marriage as well as in society and in, in church specifically within ecclesiology okay and so we're going to deal with those so i just want to tell you up front we are complementarians as a denomination i want to give you this assumption this is my this is just the way i'm putting it equal does not mean egalitarian okay it does not automatically mean egalitarian and i'm going to encourage you to listen to this morning's sermon I did not create the timing of all this, right? I'm not that smart. But it just so happened that this morning sermon dealing with 2 Peter 1, 1 and 2 fits in with what we're going to deal with in class, okay? And so it just worked out this way. So I'm going to encourage you to pay careful attention when we get to that part in the sermon. You'll hear that phrase, equal does not mean egalitarian. I think we have to stress that, okay? We can affirm, yes, all equal in the sight of God all equally redeemed by Christ, all have equal standing before Christ, right? There's, you know, Moose is not closer to Jesus than, than I am because of, just because he's a cop or whatever, right? So this, there's not that, there's an equality there, but equal does not mean egalitarian. So that's a, that's going to, I'm just telling you up front, I'm trying to be honest with everything up front, that's a principal assumption that we need to actually have as we go into things. Any questions on that before we move on? Okay, so let's do some Bible reading. 
So we're going to go to Genesis. We're going to start at the beginning, Genesis. We're going to do Genesis 1, part of Genesis 1, then Genesis 2, then Genesis 3, okay? So Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Um, nobody there? Okay, then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, uh, of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So as you look at this first part, what do male and female together make up? Yeah, man. Right? Humankind. Adam is the, is the Hebrew word there. Okay? And so, that makes up humankind. Male and female. What are some other things that you notice as you look here? Yes, God's image. That's intriguing to me because God speaks of both the plural and the singular. And then He talks about humankind in the plural and in the singular. Right? So, there is a way in which our distinctiveness as male and female together portray the image of God as plural and singular. You've already stubbed your toes on what doctrine? The big T word, the Trinity. Okay? So it's very important to remember that. That's the value. The, there's a, it's valuable that we are not all men and that we are not all women. Right? It's biblically valuable. It's actually ontologically value, valuable. Ontology is your study of being, right? Your very essence. And so, it's, it's, it's right for us to know that there's a difference and that those working together somehow reflect, in a sense, the image of God as both plural and singular. Okay? So I think that's important to remember. And you can already, if you're thinking, if you've already dealt with people who've done uh, gender reassignments and, tra- and transgender, I'm not so, just ranting here, I'm just saying, you already, from right here, you already have a toehold where you can begin to speak. Does that make sense? Okay. So, anything else do you want to, anything else you see in uh, chapter 1, 26 through 28? Um, we haven't got to chapter 2 yet. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, if, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they had dominion. Yeah, yeah. E- either either that's the case, or he's retelling the creation of humans twice for 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 various reasons. And so, yeah. Okay. Yes, David. Yes. Right, because he owns, he creates, and he's got the right to tell us how we're to be. Okay? And actually, Jesus uses that statement when he's talking about marriage and divorce, for example. He says, yes, I know the Deuteronomy 24, God permitted divorce because of the hardness of your hearts, but from the very beginning, he didn't intend it that way. And then he quotes this passage. And so, as I said some years back, when we did a whole sermon series on some of these things, I pointed out to you, if somebody asks you, well, what would Jesus say about transgender or homosexuality or any of those things you want to put in there, you know what he would say because he said it. And he pointed back to Genesis 1. There's a reason why God has made us male and female, and he did, there was no mistake. And it's not fluid. Okay? More I could say. Anything else on Genesis 1? Yes, Randy. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, John mentioned uh, um, dominion, custodians of creation. Yes. 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 
Yes, did you ever watch the video about what would happen if there were no women in the world? And it shows all these guys doing stupid things and destroying. It was just funny. It was funny. Okay, you're right. You're absolutely right. All right, well, let's go to Genesis 2 then in verses 15 through 24. Genesis 2, 15 through 24. Um, so here we go. So it's possible that it's possible that what Moses is doing is giving us uh, in Genesis one to the first part of chapter two is giving us creation broadly speaking, and now he's going to focus primarily on one day where it's animals and and humans. Okay, and so uh, if that's the case, then then here he is being very specific. And more detailed. So beginning verse 15, Yahweh God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then Yahweh God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, Yahweh God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them, what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God, that Yahweh God, um, had taken from the man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. Then he said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. In Hebrew, that's isha, because she was taken out of man, ish. That's the Hebrew word for man here, ish. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So, as you look into the passage, who is the firstborn? Yeah, first created, right? But there's a sense of firstborn means more than just the first one born. So in Psalm 89, when he's talking about, when God is talking about the descendant of David, I will make him the firstborn and he will rule over all nations or something like that. Firstborn also has a sense of rulership. Can you think of some stories of firstborn in the Old Testament where that's the case? Yeah, okay, so Jacob and Esau, one was born first, but the other one is the one who becomes the firstborn, who inherits the father's property and leads the clan. Think of Joseph. After Joseph is in sold into slavery, and um, then finally Jacob and Joseph are reunited. What does Jacob do with Joseph? What does he make him? Yeah, the first mate, the firstborn. How does he do that? He actually adopts Joseph's two sons as if they were his own sons, thus doubling his influence, vote, and power. He now has become the patriarch of the descendants of Abraham, okay? And so, firstborn is not necessarily being just the first one that shows up on the scene, the first one born. It's also a sense of leadership or rulership. So, who's the firstborn in this passage as you look, and how do you know? It's Adam. Very good. How do you know? Besides the fact he was the first one created, how do you know? Yeah, it says Adam. What? Eve came from his side. What else? He's in charge of everything. In fact, he's busy naming all the creatures. Do you notice that? All the creatures come to him to show him that he needs a helper that's fit for him, and these animals are not going to be fit for him, right? And so, but he's told to name them, and he names them. And then when Eve is created, what does Adam do with Eve? that shows the rulership. He gives her a name. Her name is Isha, because she was made from Ish. Okay, so I want you to see, before sin, before the fall, there's already this structure that the Lord has put in there 
it doesn't mean that Adam was better. They're both equal before God because together they are the image of God. There's an equality. There's not necessarily egalitarianism. There's a distinction and there's a reason for that. Okay? And so, um, very good. You guys get a gold star on your test. Okay. So Adam, what does Adam do to display the sense of leadership, authority? One of them is the fact that he names. Okay? He actually defines... He doesn't just define, he doesn't define Eve as if she's completely other. He defines Eve in his relationship with her, okay? So there's where that equal comes together, that together they're the image of God, and yet there's a distinction. So this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And remember, Paul will take that phrase and apply it in Ephesians 5 to our relationship with Christ, Christ and the church, okay? And he goes on, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then it goes on. Man will leave father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they'll become one flesh, etc. Okay? So notice that Adam does not stop exercising authority because of sin. He did fail in his authority, and I have lots of things to say about that and have in the past, but just look down at chapter 3, verse 20. After the fall and after the curse, What does Adam do in verse 20? Somebody read verse 20. Chava, I think is the Hebrew name. Chava, so it's Eve. So notice he's still naming. He's still exercising that authority. Now, though, he's exercising it as a sinner. And so you see lots of sinful things going on around there, and they still need God to come in and cover their nakedness with animal skins and all these other things, right? So he's still leading like he's supposed to at this point, but now he's leading as a sinner, okay? All right. um, So interesting, go back then to chapter 3, and after the fall, I mean, it really bugs me that Adam apparently is standing right there as Eve is being tempted. It actually makes me mad. Because it says, as soon as she ate the fruit, she turned around and gave it to him. And I just want to say to Adam, you gutless wuss. That's what I want to say. Yeah, and then he ate it, right? But it's just like, sure, that's what it was. He wasn't paying attention. Thank you, John. Yes. But I want you to notice, I'm going to start reading here at verse 8. I want, you to tell, I want you to notice, who does God go to first? Which has implications. So starting at verse 8. Uh, and, they heard, and they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden of the, at the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. But Yahweh God called to the man, and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And then he says, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree? And then, of course, comes the blame game, right? Blame shifting. Well, the woman you gave me, right? And then she says, Well, the serpent that's in the garden that you put here, right? So everybody's into blame shifting. That's one of the first signs that sin has taken over has come into the world, I think. But who does God go to and address first? Yeah, and why would He do that? Because He's made him some sense of leader in this situation. They're both in the trees. They're both in the garden. He holds Adam responsible. Even though Eve ate the fruit, he holds Adam responsible. So before the fall and after the fall, you see that um, that leadership is there. It's, it's meant to be there. Okay. Any questions up to this point that I can answer in seven seconds or less? Seriously, any questions? Okay. So, we're, gonna, we're leaving out a whole bunch of the Old Testament. There's all kinds of things going on in the Old Testament. Um, 
some that fit with this in many ways, some that show the equal, though not egalitarian, show the equality, okay, without being egalitarian in the Old Testament. You have prophetesses, you have Deborah, for example, who's a prophetess and a judge. You have Isaiah's wife, apparently as a prophetess, because he has relations with her and they have children that they name after horrible situations God tells them to do. And there are others as well. So it's, there, there, are, there is an equal but not egalitarian through the Old Testament. But I want to go to the New Testament just because of time. So let's go to Luke chapter 8. Luke 8. I want to kind of build a little bit of a case here. Not a legal case, just a case, case. I want you to notice who Jesus has around him. So this is our Lord walking through and ministering and serving uh, and, and proclaiming the gospel. He goes, it says, soon afterward he went on through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Husa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. So when you think of Jesus' entourage, who is included? We normally only think of just, just the twelve, but who's included in Jesus' entourage? Yeah, lots of women. Not just three. Right? It says, and many others. Right? That would have been racing in the first century. Okay? Even you think about, even the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about, are we not allowed to have a believing sister go with us on these trips, or is Peter the only one who can take his wife with him? What's up with that? Right? So, that happened. It, it is shocking. It was shocking at that, would have been shocking in that season. Okay? But I find it intriguing that our Lord has and includes many women in his entourage. And so let's go to Luke 23. And starting at verse 55. So this is after Christ's crucifixion and they're taking his body down and burying him. Verse 55, the women who had come with him from Galilee. So you already know who most of those are because of Luke 8. The women who come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath day, they, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they, so the they's always going back to the women that came with him from Galilee. They uh, went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find to uh, did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were uh, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, "Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember." how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. I find it really instructive that these shining individuals, these angels that are in the tomb, are talking to the women just like they would have talked to the men. Remember what Jesus said? Right? There's no demeaning. And then it goes on. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told these things to the eleven and to the rest now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tell. Now, there's where we come into John, right? What John was saying earlier. He just wasn't paying attention, right? There's, there's always those issues. It just seemed like an idle tell to them. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Okay? So who is being honored here by being the witnesses of our Lord's death and burial, but also the first witnesses of His resurrection? The women. And I, I find it interesting that all four of the gospel accounts in a society that would have demeaned a woman's testimony are willing to take the risk 
of saying, no, this really happened. They were the first ones to see and they actually record what they saw and the words they said. Okay? I mean, that's huge. It seems to me that the Gospels care more about the truth than it cares about social niceties sometimes. Right? But I find that intriguing and very encouraging that these ladies were, were honored by being the witnesses of His death and burial and the first witnesses of, of His resurrection. Okay? And so just kind of building a case here. So then throughout the gospel accounts, there are women everywhere around Jesus. They are honored. They are treated with high regard. Even our Lord's mother is held up as a model of a faithful disciple. When she says in Luke 1.38, for all of us to remember, behold, the handmaid of the Lord, let it be done to me according to your word. So women appear to have been part of the gathering even in the upper room on Pentecost. You go back and read the end of Acts chapter 1. Right? They're all there. Yes? Yes. 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 Yeah. Yep, absolutely. And that would be a great example too is how Jesus treats the Samaritan woman. She's the wrong ethnicity and she's a female and how he treats her, right? So all the way throughout the New Testament, women are greeted and held up to respect. You think about the end of Romans. There are several women actually greeted. Oh, and greet sister so-and-so and greet sister. I mean, Paul has no problem doing those things, right? Philippians 4, do you remember... The two women there. What is Paul? They're the reason Paul writes Philippians. Help these two sisters to get back together and be reconciled. Right? They're the reason for Philippians. He cares that much about them. They're that important and valuable. Or First Timothy, Second Timothy one five, when Paul was ta- and, and then chapter three verses fourteen to fifteen, when Paul says, "I know the faith you have that." that you have that you got you received from your mother and your grandmother and he mentions it by name and then in chapter 3 he says remember what you've been taught and from whom you learned it including not just himself but his mom and his grandma right so all that's really important and we need to affirm those things and we need to say yes to that that also means we need to speak up against and we need to stand against the demeaning of women in the church when we see it happen Okay, and it does happen. Not here, hopefully, didn't seem to me, but there are times and there are places. And we need to speak out against that. Okay? And yet, who is it? So women are around Jesus as he goes through his whole ministry. They see his death, burial, resurrection, which is the criteria to be an apostle. That's the criteria to be an apostle. They were with him. Remember what happened when they selected Matthias. We need to find somebody who walked with Jesus through his ministry, saw his death, burial, and resurrection, and are witnesses of it. And the women fit the criteria. But who does Jesus pick to be his apostles, his sent-out mouthpieces of his word? Yeah, the guys, right? The women qualify in the sense that they've got all the same criteria, but Jesus has said, yet still we're going to pick men, these men specifically, and they weren't always the best qualified. Just think of Peter, you know, (laughs) right? But we're going to pick them. I'm going to pick them. They're going to go out and be my mouthpiece to the world and to the church. And think about, as Paul starts talking about... um, Elders and bishops, we looked at this in church government. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. Okay, all the criteria and all the things that Paul says, let me back up, all the things that, Paul, things that Paul does and says about Christian women, and yet when it comes to church leadership, who does he say you, you work from, you pick from? Yeah, husbands and one wife, right? Very male-specific, Yes? Right? And all those participles, this may not mean much to you, but all those participles in 1 Timothy 3 actually in the Greek have a masculine ending to them. So I find that interesting because I was reading a commentary by a guy who said, 
that there's nothing here that means that, a, that you have to pick a man to be an elder or a pastor. And I was like, what are you going to do with these masculine participle endings? Which was just crickets, you know. He didn't have any answer to that. But there's Paul. He's got this high regard for Christian women. And yet he says, here's where you work from for leadership in the church. Okay? Um, yes? Yes? Sure. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great. I just said, like I said, I had to skip a whole bunch of Old Testament, but that would be a great place to go with the priest. The fact that out of all the tribe of Levi, he picks and wants the men to be the priests and stuff. And it's never because the guys have a higher value and worth. Sometimes they're not even more qualified. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Well, so, so that's a great point. There's all kinds of reasons why this may be, okay? And one of them is, you go back to Genesis 1. There's a way in which males as males and females as females together represent God in His plurality and singularity. So there's got to be distinction... It's not that one deserves it and the other doesn't. It's the fact that this is how I, as David said earlier, I as the creator have set these things up. And this works beautifully. This is very good, he says in Genesis 1. Right? And all, you know, and humans want to say, hogwash! We want to do it our way! And then we get everything messed up and we wonder why society gets messed up. Right? So great, great uh, point there. There's all kinds of other aspects um, I actually was telling Wes this the other day because I think this fits in with 2 Timothy 2. I think also because Adam failed in his leadership. That's why God has placed men to stay in leadership, to be retrained in not failing in that leadership. All kinds of things you can go with there. Okay. Um, Again, remember, equal, just not egalitarian. That's really where I was going with all that. Um, look at um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. Lots of things we could come up with and, and work through here in 1 Corinthians 11. I just want to look at the first two, verse, uh, verse 2 and verse 3. Somebody read uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2 and 3. Scott. Okay, very good. So what does Paul address, describe what Paul is addressing in those verses? Yeah, roles. Right? He's not discussing really ontology, right? Our sense of our, our being, that we're equal in being. He's actually discussing roles. He's actually addressing roles, okay? And so then, where does Paul ground his point about the distinction of roles between men and women? Where does he ground it? In the Trinity. I think that that's hugely important. If the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all equal in power and glory, yet it says something, the fact that the Son submits Himself happily to the Father. I do nothing on my own authority, He says a zillion times in John. Right? And then the Spirit gladly and happily submits Himself to the Son and to the Father. He comes, he comes and proceeds from the Father and the Son and is poured out on us. So, so that sense of submission or, or whatever you want to call it is not a dirty word. I know it is in America, but it's not a dirty word 
because it's godlike. It's Trinitarian. Everybody, as, as Bob Dylan used to sing in the 1980s, everybody's got to serve somebody. Right? Everybody's got to be submissive to someone. And so it's not a dirty word. And so Paul grounds that in the Trinity. And I think that that's important for us as we talk to our kids, as we think of our own relationships, and so forth. And so even within the Trinity, equal is not egalitarian. Okay, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal in power and glory of the same substance, and yet the Son submits to the Father, and the Spirit submits to the Son and to the Father. Okay? That's not subordinationism, by the way. That's a willing submission. <laughs> All right, any questions up to this point? Yes? Yes. Yes. It's a great example. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, but Pastor, you're a guy. Okay, let me quote two women. Does that help? This is Kathy Keller, Tim Keller's wife. She wrote a book called Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles. And I don't necessarily agree with all of her conclusions, but she does a very good job. You have to know that Kathy Keller was on the fast track to become a PCUSA pastor. And when she came to Scripture and actually read it, she went, no. And she backed out of it. Okay? And so here's what she says. This is where Jesus comes in. Jesus is the reason you can trust that God's justice is behind your assigned gender role, whether you are a man who would rather not take leadership or assume risk, or a woman who wishes she could. Both get to play the Jesus role. It takes both men and women living out their gender roles in the safety of home and church to reveal... To reveal, listen to the gospel aspect of this. To reveal to the world the fullness of the person of Jesus. And that's what Paul goes into in Ephesians 5. When he's talking about husbands and wives, he's actually talking about, as he says, Christ and the church. And our marriages either proclaim the true gospel or they proclaim a false gospel. That's what Paul's emphasizing in Ephesians 5. So even our marriage relationships do this. And I think Kathy's right. I think she's got that exactly right. That the way we are with each other is part of the proclamation or the revealing to the world the fullness of the person of Jesus. This is another woman. This was written in uh, 2012. It's called, the title of the article is Complementarianism for Dummies. I thought, hey, I can read this. Her name is uh, Mary Casey, and she was actually answering an article that accused uh, that blamed what we're talking about, complementarianism, blamed it for lots of evils in the church, and so she's actually answering it. Here's what she said. Essentially, a complementarian is a person who believes that God created male and female to reflect complementary truths about Jesus. That's the bottom line meaning of the word. Complementarians believe that males were designed to shine the spotlight on Christ's relationship to the church. Think Ephesians 5. And the Lord God's relationship to Christ in a way that females cannot and that females were designed to shine the, bright, the spotlight on the church's relationship to Christ and Christ's relationship to the, Lord, to the Lord God in a way that males cannot. Who we are as male and female is ultimately not about us. It's about testifying to the story of Jesus. We do not get to dictate what manhood or womanhood are all about. Our Creator does. That goes to David's point at the beginning. Okay? I think that's really helpful reading that and thinking through that of why do we do what we do, okay? Any questions? I've got to go a little bit more and then I'm done, but any questions? Implications and applications. So ways that we present this in our congregation. What are some ways we present this in our congregation? There's a distinction, still honoring, honoring male and female, but there's a distinction of roles. What are some ways that we... we um, present this in our congregation? You have no idea, do you? 
Huh? Yeah, yeah. Male pastors, male elders, so forth, right? What are some other ways? Yes? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. We've got women's ministry. We've got a chairwoman. We've got leadership there. We have a woman directing our music. That's a sense, a little bit of sense of leadership there. Um, uh, we have women that actually, a woman that actually coordinates and directs our vacation Bible school. We have one that teams up with me that co-leads our Carnegie mission trip, right? We have all kinds, so it's, it's not, no, no, women never, never, it's, so it's, we have it there, but there's a distinction, okay? We try to present it, and we do this self-consciously, we try to present this also in ways that we do worship, okay? Who leads worship at Heritage? Elders, not men, just because they're men, but elders. Okay? Here's where I think part of our problem is in America is that most of our churches have drunk too deeply from democracy. Right? Which means that a rule, to use James Madison's phrase, his phrase in the Federalist Papers, is a rule by the mob, 51% vote. Well, if anybody can do it, I can do it. But that's a problem. Not everything is democratic in the church, okay? And so there's a reason why we have elders leading worship. They're your shepherds. It's part of how they shepherd. But also, who distributes communion most of the time? Elders, right? And if we're really tight, we will squeeze in a deacon to help us out, okay? Another church officer. But that's intentional. That was all, it's all intentional. It's not because we don't want anybody else to do it. It's because that's part of how we shepherd. There's a role responsibility there. Does that make sense? Okay. So every time you look at the front and you see somebody up there helping to lead, it better be an elder. <laughs> Can be a deacon on a hard, you know, strange occasions, but, but it's going to be a church officer. Okay? All right, so how, what other ways do we present this in the congregation? All right, so then the next question, how might this impact our marriages? Those of you who are married. Those of you who want to be married. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so there are role distinctions. How those play out depend a lot on, not all of them are Bible demanded. Some are actually very culturally colored. Okay. So, for example, you go to Turkey, women and men work together out in the field harvesting all the time, right? The, the, the role distinction is seen in the color of their clothes, right? The women wear very colorful baggy breeches, and the men wear very drab brown and gray drabby breeches. That's how you know the men and the women from a distance, right? But then when they get back from the, from the field, they also have other roles that they play out that show some of those distinctions. Some of that can be cultural, but a lot of it, but you, you have to go through and say for sure what is the scriptural aspect of this that we have to stay with, okay? And so here's a scriptural principle. Whatever we do, we don't want to muddle the distinction between male and female. That's a biblical principle. Now, does that mean that a woman can't wear pants, you know, pantsuits and stuff? No, that doesn't mean that. I know our forebears used to think that, but that's not the case. But there's a way in which, even in our dress, we show a distinction between male and female because it's beautiful. Does that make sense? All right, so anyways, it impacts our marriages. And when I do pre-marriage counseling, I always tell the young couples, I say, you're going to have to duke it out to figure out how this works, okay? So, it does. Uh, In what ways should this affect our other relationships?
They're not in competition. Yeah, they're not in competition. That's the big thing is they're not in competition. And that's one of the things we have to broadcast because that's the way our society has presented it since at least the 50s when we had the war of the sexes, you know, the battle of the sexes, I mean. You know, remember the song, I can do anything, you can do it better, right? You remember that song? Yeah. No, nobody remembers it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Ephesians 5.21. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Sure. Yep. Yep. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Another way that this affects our relationships is to make sure that we're not party to demeaning the other sex. Okay? We talk about abuse all day long. I mean, I could talk about it quite a bit. But we're not busy demeaning the other sex. We actually honor them. Okay? And that goes both ways. Right? Okay. Let's see. So, uh, Give some examples of what this doesn't mean. That should be easy. Anybody ever remember Archie and Edith? Archie, go get Edith, give me another beer, right? Remember Archie and Edith? That's always my go-to example of what this doesn't mean. I'd hate to have been his son-in-law. Meathead! Remember that? Yes. Right, 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 right. Specifically to her husband, yes. All right. Yeah, very good. All right, so overall, that's complementarianism. That was pretty quick. I mean, it was 45, 50 minutes, okay? Any, any questions, any clarifications that I can give in short span? Did that help at all? Okay. So next week, we're going to talk about John Calvin. Whoop, 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 whoop. All right. That'll be fun to do next week. So, let's pray. Lord God, thank You that You have made us. You've made us male and female. And it was very good. Lord, forgive us that sometimes in our society and sometimes in our churches, people are ashamed of males and females. Lord, have mercy on us. Help us to be a bright beam displaying the beauty of the distinctions between male and female, but the goodness also of together representing and picturing and imaging the image of God, both in the plurality and the singularity. I pray that that beautiful picture would be broadcast down our generations to our kids, our grandkids, our great-grandkids, and beyond, Lord. I pray that you would uh, be with us now as we prepare to, to enter into the great assembly to worship and adore you. Uh, we We pray and beg you for your Holy Spirit to enliven our hearts, to draw us in. And we pray for the gospel to shape us. In Jesus' name, amen.